Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's the day before Election Day. I've been back in America for a day and a half as I write this and feeling a little disoriented. It's a feeling I remember from my daily journalism days. A big event happens. You get sent to cover it. You arrive in a place convulsed by the event, and you grasp for impressions that might help you understand the ground truth of what's going on. A couple of plumes of smoke shinning up towards the summer sky over Belfast. A corridor from the airport made of cargo containers stacked six or seven high on the way out of Sarajevo Airport. You are in this place now. This is what you need to convey to your listeners. And then you start filling in the palette. When I come back to America now, I expatriated myself 35 years ago this month. It's not as foreign as Belfast or Sarajevo, but it isn't completely familiar either. Anyway, the impressions that stuck with me as I drove from Newark Airport to my sister's house in the Philadelphia suburbs were not visual. On the surface, except for masks and the ease with which I got in and out of the airport, everything looks as it should. Two phrases, concepts, went through my brain. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and don't mourn, organize. It seems to me my world is oscillating between the two. Talking to people, family, friends, and contacts I've developed over the last five years reporting on the resistible rise of Donald Trump, I know his election was a trauma for many. PTSD is defined as a disorder in which a person has difficulty recovering after experiencing or witnessing a terrifying event. Post-trauma, they seem incapable of seeing anything but imminent catastrophe. I don't live with this every day, so when I tell them Biden's leading in the polls, they will tell you the polls were wrong in 2016. Remind them the Democrats seized back control of the House of Representatives in 2018, and they say winning more votes isn't enough. Trump will use tactics to invalidate enough of the vote to force the Supreme Court to decide who won. He has appointed three justices, after all, and the traumatized assume they will hand him victory. Don't mourn organize were the last words of early union organizer Joe Hill, executed on trumped-up charges more than a hundred years ago in Utah. The events of 2016 galvanized some people into action, particularly women. They didn't mourn, well, not for too long anyway, they organized all over the country. Women who had no previous experience of political activism started groups to make sure that Trump would be a one-term president, a historical anomaly. I met some of them in Georgia and Texas in 2018. It was their energy that led to the democratic takeover of the House. I rehearsed this history with my PTSD-suffering friends and family. It doesn't really help them. It really was a shock, what happened in 2016, and the events since then, and at an accelerated pace with the onset of COVID and the eruption of social protests since the murder of George Floyd, have only served to act as a daily trigger for their fear of the worst. Another thing I remember from covering conflicts is the sense of always being two steps behind where the center of the news storm was. Should I go to the neighborhood where burning tires at the main intersection are creating the smoke plumes in Belfast? Or should I run to the press conference with a local political heavyweight that I've just heard about, but for which I'm not credentialed? 
My plan had been to visit Reading, a college classmate who lives there and who has not been mourning but organizing, had been in touch via Facebook to say Reading would be a very good place to visit. But as I drove to Philly, I heard on the news that Trump had just visited. And then Sunday morning, I heard Joe Biden was going to be in Philadelphia. Maybe I should just junk my plans and stay in Philly and go watch Joe work the crowd. But that was idiotic. Campaign events really aren't open, and not just because of COVID. For decades, they've been organized and tightly controlled, staged for television more than to reach voters or activists. It's not like the old days. In October 1960, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon campaigned the same day, at roughly the same hour, no more than a few miles apart in suburban shopping centers in Philadelphia. My parents took me to the Kennedy speech at Ballakinwood. The crowd was not an invitation-only event. It was wide open, raucously enthusiastic. I remember two things about it. Kennedy's carrot-orange hair and my mother in her mid-thirties, chasing after his open-top limousine like a bobby soxer chasing after Frank Sinatra. I spent an hour trying to find out where and when Joe was doing his thing, sent frantic emails about getting a credential before coming to my senses and going back to Plan A. My friend in Reading was instrumental in setting up an organization called Pennsylvania Stands Up, and I wanted to find out more about it. The group coalesced from the dozens of local groups set up by women, not mourning but organizing, after 2016. Hannah Laurison, Pennsylvania Stands Up Executive Director, explained in a phone conversation before I hit the road that Trump brought to the fore what's been happening in our communities for a long time. She told me Pennsylvanians are divided by race, class, and geography, and we are trying to overcome those divisions. Hannah Laurison is typical of the progressive women who were doing the bulk of the grassroots organizing for the Democratic Party. We spoke on the phone as Biden was en route to Philadelphia. I asked if she was going to one of his events. She knew nothing about it. Her organization is independent of the party, and she prefers it that way. It allows Pennsylvania Stands Up to develop its own campaign strategies, a necessity since COVID pretty much killed off the possibility of knocking on doors and trying to persuade voters face to face. When the pandemic hit, we were very worried about how you can campaign if you can only phone bank, Laurison recalls, but it turned out the pandemic was a gift. Her group worked on what she calls deep canvas, long telephone conversations that were less about Joe Biden and voting Democrat than encouraging people to share their experiences of the crisis. They were political conversations in the broadest sense, Hannah says. We talk to people and try to help when they say, I need groceries, who can I talk to to avoid being evicted? The focus on Pennsylvania in this election is very personal for me. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and spent a year shortly after university working for the state government, organizing a series of conferences on health care. That was in 1974. The Health Maintenance Organization Act had just been passed, an early attempt to try and get Americans some kind of guarantee of access to health care. President Richard Nixon had signed the bill. 
Yes, my friends, those were the days when a bipartisan Congress could send what was essentially a democratic bill, imposing obligations on the healthcare business to open up to people who couldn't afford their full-fat insurance premiums to a Republican president, and the legislation wouldn't be vetoed. The conferences were meant to be about collecting data on community needs, but really they were an opportunity for creating public opinion in favor of the government having a say in the healthcare system. There were lively debates at those meetings, respectful, no demonstrations, although I think at one there may have been some people with placards out saying, no socialized medicine. I got to know the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania intimately that year, from the big cities and suburbs to the industrial towns already showing rust at the edges. I loved driving through the state's central, beautiful, empty quarter where ridges of the Appalachian Mountains are separated by lush agricultural valleys. I spent hours driving up and down the broad Susquehanna River. I also got to know myself. I realized that government work was not my path in life. That was four decades ago. As America has become more polarized, so has Pennsylvania. It has also become the most critical swing state in presidential elections. I drove in heavy rain from the Philly suburbs to Reading. The history of America's economy could be read in the landscape and in the widened highways cutting through what was once farm country, a huge crossroads with vast car dealerships, not one of them an American make, enormous shopping centers in what looked like uninhabited bits of countryside. There would be housing developments somewhere, but I couldn't see them. The trees lining the first ridge of Appalachian Hills were still clinging on to their yellow and faded orange leaves, although after that storm, I doubt for much longer. In the last two weeks, Mike Pence and Donald Trump both visited Reading. Actually, visited is the wrong word. They held brief rallies at the local airport. Why would they invest the time and energy in this city of 88,000, about 60 miles west of Philadelphia? A city that is famous for two things, the Reading Railroad, which went out of business years ago and survives in memory only by its prominence on the Monopoly board, and for being the birthplace of novelist John Updike, whose rabbit novels, centered on the life of Harry Rabbit Angstrom, are set in a fictionalized version of Reading. If you remember the books, Rabbit is a Trump supporter before there was Trump. Pennsylvania is the must-win state for the Republicans. It's virtually impossible for Trump to keep the presidency if he doesn't win here and collect its 20 electoral votes. In 2016, he won them by less than 1% of the ballots cast. Reading is the largest city in Berks County, a microcosm of the state as a whole. The city, comparatively liberal and ethnically mixed, is surrounded by semi-rural and rural communities that are mostly white, natural Trump country. The president has to maintain turnout among his supporters if he's to have any chance to keep hold of the state. Biden has been focused on the state as well. At one level, it's personal. Pennsylvania is his home state. But although he leads in the polls on election eve, the lead is within the margin of error. He needs to shore up turnout in the big cities as well. Margin of error. Say those words to my PTSD-suffering friends and they get the shakes. I had a pleasant socially distanced drink with my college classmate. Her partner mixes an excellent Manhattan.
We sat outside in her enclosed front porch, the rain hammering down, leaves skittering to the ground. It was a brief get-together. She's not mourning, she's organizing for what happens after the polls close. One recent success is that the count in Reading will be televised live on a local cable station. Anyway, she had to run off to a Zoom meeting. Pennsylvania Stands Up has organized training in de-escalation and de-conflicting the situations they expect to arise at places where the votes are being counted. My friend told me that occasionally armed men, amosexuals she calls them, have turned up at her public meetings. She expects that kind of intimidation to continue at the count. This made me think of another phrase, to go alongside PTSD and don't mourn, organize. The old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I will try to have one more for you tomorrow. If you've listened this far, tell your friends to listen as well, please. And visit the website and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.